Hello all, and welcome back to From the Front Row. My name is Steve Lansanier. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We are a student-led podcast that focuses on major issues across the field of public health. Today we'll be chatting with two of our colleagues at the College of Public Health, Dr. Dan Sewell, an assistant professor in the Department of Biostatistics, and Caitlin Ward, a PhD student in the Department of Biostatistics. We'll be discussing the released COVID-19 modeling work done by the College of Public Health, as well as the importance of infectious disease modeling. Can you both introduce yourselves, your roles at the College of Public Health, and how you became involved in the CPH COVID-19 response team? And Dr. Sewell, if you want to start off first for us. Sure. Yeah, so my name is Dan Sewell. I am faculty in the Department of Biostatistics. Uh, I started out uh, getting my PhD in pure stats, um, but was motivated by the, um, the interesting applications in biostatistics and, and hence uh, moved in that direction. So I became part of the COVID-19 response team back in March when um, you know various faculty across campus, primarily in the College of Public Health, but also in Carver College of Medicine. Uh, we were volunteering ourselves to help IDPH with their COVID-19 response. So this involves understanding what models and forecasts were out there, taking their more granular data and making more Iowa-specific forecasts and projections, and importantly, uh, trying to understand uh, the effects of various non-pharmaceutical interventions uh, in Iowa. Um, so that's that's sort of how we got involved. Yeah, so I'm Caitlin Ward. I'm a PhD student in biostatistics, and my dissertation topic was actually infectious disease modeling. So when the pandemic started, I thought, you know, this is going to be really interesting to see the different modeling approaches that um, come out of this. And Dan had actually proposed um, creating this application to help display the results from his models, um, kind of exploring how these non-pharmaceutical interventions impact our trajectory. And he reached out to the graduate students in the department. And so I sort of volunteered at that point because I wanted to see more what the modeling team was doing um, and also, you know, help out given that I had some expertise in the area already. That's a lot of really tremendous experience and really timely opportunity for everything to come along and be able to apply it as, as a student and then as faculty as well. And kind of taking us back in time, you know, we, we go back to April, which sounds so long ago at this point in the time frame of COVID-19. Uh, but the CPH COVID-19 response team had developed a free modeling tool to kind of assist in guiding the community response to the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Can you talk about the impetus for the project? You know, we had mentioned about granular data already existing. We had common models that were already out there, like the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. How did this effort differ compared to those other existing models? As you say, there were a whole bunch of different methods, different websites that people could go to to see projections. The IM was certainly the most widely referenced uh, in mainstream media uh, and elsewhere. Still is one of the most widely used forecasting sites. One thing that these forecasts and uh, you know all these online tools that were available 
one thing that it was missing was the ability to accurately evaluate the what ifs. So they were all focused on sort of what will happen in the future. And we were focused less on that and more on the, well, what would happen if we were to say, relax the lockdown on such and such a date or implement a mask mandate here? And what would happen if we reimposed you know, these bar closures at this time and released it at this other time? So it was all hyper-focused on decision-making. What would happen if we went in this route versus this other route? So that's really how it differed from everything else that was out there. You know, one other thing I want to say about this is that these non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as social distancing, quarantining, wearing face masks in public, all these things are intricately tied with interpersonal contacts. So try not to get too much into the weeds on these models, but a lot of models, you know, there's always a balance of, of various aspects, you know, computationally efficiency, you know, can we actually compute these models and get results in a timely fashion? There's a balance between, you know, making sure that we've got a reasonable uh, representation of the disease characteristics. One facet that sadly gets neglected too often in these sorts of models is interpersonal contact patterns being accurately represented. So, you know, my background is in network analysis and looking at how, in this case, how individuals contact each other. And so we spent a good amount of time making sure that that aspect was modeled very accurately so that when we're thinking about these non-pharmaceutical interventions, we really are getting an accurate estimate of what their impact might be. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is uh, when we were first starting this modeling, we really wanted it to be Iowa specific. So the IHME model is, I mean, now it's countrywide, nationwide, but they, at the time, we didn't have a stay at home order, but we did have lots of closures, but their model didn't reflect that at all because we didn't have an official stay at home order. So our model was able to uh, really be Iowa specific in accounting for the things that we know since we live here. I think that's an important distinction too, is when you have something nationally like that, it does miss those non-pharmaceutical interventions that Dan is mentioning about how that varies state to state, depending on if there was stay-at-home orders or mask mandates or whatever have you with it. When we're, we're talking about these models coming out, you know, we're talking about what would happen or what could happen. One of the statistician adages I've heard before is all models are wrong, but some are useful. How do you really navigate this concept when you're delivering information to policymakers and the public, especially when we're really at a point where there's an emphasis on public health to champion clear communication efforts. Yeah, so the statement, all models are wrong, some are useful. I mean, this statement is absolutely true, but it's also really horribly misused and oftentimes I think misunderstood. So I think in the age of COVID-19, I've heard people use this phrase more often in response to modeling results that they don't like more than here's a model that I don't like and there's good solid scientific reasons for why I don't think this model is good. So the reason why it's true is because infectious disease and the way that it spreads is just insanely complex and you cannot possibly accurately model everything. I don't know, for instance, how often 
your grandma goes to the grocery store and when she goes, you know, how many other people will be there, what surfaces she's touching, who else has touched those surfaces, the transfer efficiency of virus from that surface to her hands and then from hands to mouth, you know, this sort of thing. I mean, there's just, you have to simplify at some point in time. So there are some simplifications that are okay and some are not. Some really will lead to erroneous results. They're just simplifying things that really need to not be simplified. But other simplifications are perfectly fine. The results don't change based on you know, going to a less granular level. So one example of this is in the modeling work that, that I've done alongside Caitlin and a bunch of others is, so here we built uh, a contact network between all the three plus million Iowans. And the network, the specific network that we used really didn't make any difference whatsoever so long as certain network properties were maintained. So we did a sensitivity analysis on our modeling results with thousands of different networks and it made absolutely no difference whatsoever, again, as long as certain network characteristics were maintained. The big problem is, is that these simplifications are not readily accessible to a layperson. It really requires a pretty in-depth understanding of these models and what's going on um, behind the scenes. Uh, and so I think this is why it's just so very, very important to have a, a solid faith in science by the public. You know, scientific process is pretty rigorous and it's pretty good at self-correcting. And to be perfectly frank, scientists can be pretty ruthless when we find errors in other people's works. And so I think the safe thing to say is that if you are looking at, you know, some of these online forecasting results and, um, uh, and, and you can find a citation for where uh, this modeling work is published and it's been peer reviewed, then you can have a fairly reasonable degree of faith in that work. You know, we as scientists love to be cited, so we're going to make it as easy as possible. So if our modeling results are in fact published and peer reviewed, uh, we try to make it obvious. Uh, and so if that's not there, that would be the time when I uh, would suggest you start being a little bit more skeptical. Um, but uh, but if, if a, a forecasting result is, you know, peer reviewed, published, uh, it's, I, I think it's safe to say it's, it's going to be reasonable. I know you mentioned the, the complexity of disease transmission, especially in this case right now when we're having a novel virus that we're dealing with. Caitlin, when you're going through your dissertation process, like you said, you've had some previous experience in this area. How did your work as a student kind of prepare you to come into this area of disease modeling? The work that I've been doing for my dissertation was really helpful in thinking about how these models are set up and how to, you know, effectively display and communicate the results from these types of models. Since I've been kind of familiar with the output and the types of summaries that we can make, I think something that's really critical with the communication piece of these models is people look at the forecasts, you know, maybe forecasts that were made in April or May, for like around this time and they say, well, they were way off, you know, these models must be terrible. And, you know, being able to communicate, you know, there's so many things that we just don't 
know what's going to happen. You know, in Iowa, we've seen easing restrictions and then adding restrictions and then easing restrictions again. And there's just no way to account for that um, when you're projecting so far out. Um, but I would say with our, the modeling that we've done, we really tried to focus on like the trends. So we say, you know, what happens when you implement a mask mandate or something to that effect and we can see the case count decreasing over time and we're less focused on the actual number um, that we're getting from our output and more focusing on um, the trend that we're seeing there. Kind of following along with that communications piece that you're reiterating, you know, you had helped lead the user interface and Spanish translation for this entity and these usability features are, are critical for folks who might have difficulty engaging in technology or they might have English not as their first language. What was kind of your approach to these areas because they are so complex and, and what feedback did you receive from users or other policymakers? First to talk about the Spanish translation, that was another graduate student's idea and we felt like it was really critical to add that piece in because we saw such a disparity in you know, incidence and mortality for minorities compared to uh, white individuals. So making our app really accessible for the people that are being affected the most uh, was really important. And that was a huge effort from a couple graduate students in our department, um, Felix Pabon Rodriguez and Aline Hernandez, who, you know, volunteered their time to translate multiple iterations of the application. Um, in terms of usability, we went through lots of iterations with that as well, and we got a lot of really good feedback from people in the College of Public Health, both in the Department of Biostatistics and not in our department. Uh, it really helped us refine uh, our things. So as Dan was saying, we can get, um, these models can be so complex, and there's so many parameters that go into these. And so what we really wanted to do was balance that complexity while still allowing users to vary important parameters and see the impact of different scenarios. And so what we ended up doing was picking two uh, specific interventions to really hone in on, which was social distancing and uh, mask wearing or PPE efficacy. And then the users could play around with the efficacy of those interventions as well as the date of implementation. And um, we really tried to simplify the user interface as much as we could while still allowing users to see lots of different scenarios and lots of different projections. I think that's a really important piece because you want to make sure that there are boundaries accessible to everyone, but then also be able to interface with it at, at multiple levels, whether you're going to be a layperson or if you're a policymaker trying to make a decision about what could these scenarios actually look like? How should we respond? Yeah, it was really helpful to have feedback from some non-biostatisticians when we were creating the app because we're so close to it that it's like, oh, this makes perfect sense. And they're like, we're not sure what's going on here. It is always that idea. And I'm always amazed at, you know, folks who can translate into the design piece because I'm very much so in that similar boat of I'm, I'm great at making this data here and this is all fantastic. And then when someone can workshop it and say, have you thought about this? It's really great when you have that interactivity and Within this concept of, you know, scenarios that we're talking about, you know, at the beginning of the semester, we had a, a big rise kind of in cases. And Dr. Sewell, back in June, you had noted that if Iowans were willing and able to wear PPE, like face masks, we could potentially offset this rise in cases. We're talking about this idea of non-pharmaceutical interventions, whether it's social distancing or face masks. 
We know that this past Sunday, Governor Reynolds allowed for bars to reopen in Johnson County. What is your hope for patrons and business owners, given that we saw this large increase in cases at the start of the semester? So there's no question that had Iowans' behaviors not changed back in March, that we would have seen pretty catastrophic results. Fortunately, we did have a statewide lockdown and people did start wearing masks more and more, uh, and it made a huge impact on the number of cases in the state. The surge of COVID-19 at the beginning of the semester, this was a really foreseeable event. I don't think anybody in infectious disease was caught off guard by this. This was really um, not surprising. And it was, it was disappointing, of course, you know, because what our modeling results based on the data have shown definitively is that behaviors matter. And we would have hoped that college students coming back would have taken that message to heart, but that message clearly was not communicated uh, strongly enough. And so we did see the cases rise. And, you know, so there was some panic from a lot of different corners of, uh, in response to this surge. So I had some conversations with some of the leadership at the university about, you know, whether we should or should not keep the campus open. And they were talking about, you know, bar closures, trying to get a citywide closure on the bars and, uh, and other similar type facilities. And I did express the expectation that closing these bars would bring uh, a dramatic decrease in cases. And, and that is, in fact, what happened. And so I guess what my hope is, to finally get around to your question, uh, I guess what my hope is, is that that sudden drop that corresponded so tightly with the closure of bars, that that is very clear in people's minds. Uh, and, and that it's very clear that just as you know, so long as we can actually act responsibly, we can keep large portions of our society open. We don't have to have these really strong and severe uh, lockdowns on different aspects of our society. If nothing else from a, uh, in, in the bar's self-interest to make sure that there's not a second spike once the bars reopen, uh, and so if nothing else, you know, we should, you know, I would hope that the owners of the bars, the employees and the students and, and others who are visiting these bars uh, will behave responsibly just so, you know, we don't have to close these places down again. But, you know, there's an, the obvious more strong motivation in that if there's another big outbreak, then that means, you know, it's not just the people in the bars who are getting infected. It's then those people going out and infecting others and the people that they subsequently come in contact with. You know, there's just large downstream effects that I'm just not sure how much is in people's minds. And I think that it's important to bear those in mind. And so my hope is, is that simply put, people act responsibly when they go to visit the bars uh, and we don't have another surge in cases. One of the areas I do want to bring to light is, you know, what do you think the most pressing issues are in your field? You know, you've mentioned that folks might not have information downstream. Are there other areas that folks should be focused on, especially when it comes to infectious disease modeling or biostatistics? What are areas that people might be missing or not thinking about off the top of their head? 
Well, I would say that the most important issue by far is just the understanding that behaviors of individuals matter, and they matter a lot. So we're at well over 200,000 deaths in the United States alone. And if that doesn't get people's attention, I just don't know what will. It's, it's a big deal, and we all are in this together. Most importantly, the behaviors that an individual does is not self-centered. It's not, I'm wearing a mask because I'm afraid of getting COVID-19. It's not about the person doing these things, you know, social distancing or wearing the mask. It's always been about protecting other individuals in our community. You know, you think about when people are most symptomatic, it's right before you start showing symptoms, if you ever do, in fact, show symptoms, which means it is literally impossible to discern when you are at your peak infectivity versus you are just perfectly fine. And so if you are not constantly wearing a mask when you're around other people, you could be infecting all sorts of other individuals who then go on, as I mentioned before, with the downstream effects, you know, they go on to infect you know, maybe the, the clerk at the grocery store, and then that person comes into work the next day and starts infecting other people. Your behavior is not about you. It's about protecting your community. So I think that understanding is the most pressing issue. I think that's an excellent point about understanding the effects of what this can be. And it, it can be, it, you know, there's multiple news stories because constantly where, you know, someone will hold a wedding and then folks will be infected who weren't even at the wedding. You know, this, those, those occurrences are very commonplace. And I think it's kind of a little bit of an out of sight, out of mind characteristic sometimes, but I do appreciate the idea of it. It is a collective effort. You know, we are all in this together. We all want to get through this together. We would like to see this pandemic end rapidly. And part of that is doing our part to protect our fellow citizens. Caitlin, I want to turn to you and, and get your thoughts in too as well. You know, for, for our listeners, what do you think is the most pressing issue in this field of infectious diseases modeling or within the field of coronavirus since it's so impactful at this point? Yeah, so definitely I agree with what Dan was saying about thinking of individual behaviors. One other thing, um, particularly with modeling, that is um, has been a big issue with COVID is thinking about the data generation process and data quality that we have available to us. So, you know, our models can only be as good as the data that we have. Um, and particularly with COVID, we've seen asymptomatic cases. We don't, it's hard to get data on them. The data that we see is going to be positive tests over time, which brings up a whole other issues with, you know, tests aren't perfect either. Um, so just looking at positive tests is really not giving us the whole picture. Um, so some things that I've seen, I know in Indiana, they've been doing some statewide prevalence surveys. Um, so they just test um, like a random sample of individuals in the state and they get kind of some information about this asymptomatic issue and things like that can be hugely beneficial for our models and um, allowing us to make uh, accurate uh, modeling of the epidemic. I, I could add to that, just because I think that Caitlin's bringing up such an important point in, in, in talking about data transparency and data availability. So this is something that's been difficult for a variety of reasons in the state of Iowa, uh, certainly not the least of which is insufficient funding to IDPH. You know, I think that the, the 
difficulty in getting reasonably transparent data to important decision makers at you know, think like county supervisors, think school boards, uh, leadership at universities and colleges, you know, they all need to understand the state of the disease in their area. And I would just hope that this, uh, this really illustrates the need to have a strongly funded Department of Public Health that can deliver the necessary information and can have the staff on site to be able to make best use of this data and to make sure that everybody knows exactly what is happening uh, on the ground. Yeah, the, the idea that, you know, this is a big moment for public health, the time to shine. This is showing, you know, really where the field can be going towards what we can do when we have the proper data, but really making the call too that we, we need funding for this. You think of the idea of a, uh, you don't put gas in the car, it can't drive. You know, you don't give funding to public health. There's not a lot of expectation for us to do these really important work of infectious disease modeling. If we're doing community behavioral health interventions, you know, all of these things that we've talked about today are really critical, but they can't happen without funding. Yeah, I think it's, you know, another point that sort of illustrates this is the fact that it took a bunch of faculty members from as I said at the very beginning, College of Public Health and Carver College of Medicine, who just simply volunteered our time. And it was a lot of time. We were all fairly well working round the clock, morning, day, night, weekends, just all the time working on this. It was all volunteer work. There just simply wasn't the personnel that was already in place to do that work. You know, I, I've had a number of contacts with individuals across the state who have put in countless hours of just volunteered unpaid time simply to help make things more transparent in Iowa, to help decision makers have you know, nice dashboards for, for data, say at the school district level, this sort of a thing. It's been a lot of, of volunteers stepping up to the plate in this time. Yeah, I think back when I'm reflecting on the time of this pandemic, you know, there, there has been a surge of community work, you know, for, for, for most of it where, you know, we're concerned about individual actions and how they may affect things. There also is that balancing aspect of we have so many people who are willing to give back to our state and give back to our country by developing and putting in hours to protect other folks and their efforts should be rewarded, you know, and recognized too for, for what they've done. And, and I would like to thank both of you for, for your efforts and, and for your team's efforts too as well. You know, we are all very fortunate to be part of a, a college that is helping to lead, especially in the response to these big issues. When we're talking about these areas, whether it's infectious disease modeling, the coronavirus pandemic, or, or, you know, kind of just how the pandemic has played out as a whole, you know, what's one thing that you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? One thing jumps to mind when you ask this question, and that is, you know, if we rewind the clock to, to May, we started to see cases going down. And this was really perplexing to me at the time because when these cases were going down, Caitlin and others uh, on the team, we were looking at mobile phone data that was showing that people were quarantining less. And so it was this very odd scenario where based on the quarantining levels, we would have expected cases to go up and yet here they were going down. 
So then I started looking very seriously at seasonality of other human coronaviruses. And it was really shocking. Two things. One, that they were so strongly seasonal. And two, they were almost identically so. So we've got four other major human coronaviruses that pop up year to year. Uh, and they're all you know, very low cases to no cases in the summer months and very high cases during the winter months. And so at first I was thinking that this was probably the best explanation for why uh, cases were going down, uh, which is a little terrifying to think that, you know, the full force of COVID-19 we hadn't even seen yet in the United States, you know, that would come in November and December. But then as the month, summer months went on, uh, we did not see, of course, a dramatic drop in cases. It's been pretty steady with some ups and some downs. Now, I wouldn't go anywhere near so far as to saying that I don't think that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is going to be seasonal. Uh, it may or may not be. It's simply too early to tell. And, you know, all of the ups and downs that we're seeing is because of all sorts of different factors, um, you know, people's behaviors, uh, you know, the George Floyd protests, for example, students coming back, you know, all sorts of different things. If you look back in history, this is not atypical for novel pathogens when they're first uh, introduced into fully susceptible populations. Uh, it tends to behave fairly erratically. But, you know, after some further study, I think that the best explanation for why cases started going down in May and why they haven't just really taken off since then is because Iowans have been wearing masks so much more than they did in the first couple months. And that was something that at the time we didn't really have any data on. And so we didn't realize that it was happening. I mean, we had, you know, we go to the supermarket and see, oh, well, maybe there's a few more folks wearing masks than I saw last month. But, um, you know, but since then, I think that that is actually the best explanation for why we've been able to uh, dampen the effects of COVID-19 in Iowa. So hopefully, Hopefully, I've been completely wrong about the seasonality of SARS-CoV-2. We'll, we'll see, it, I guess, in a few months. Caitlin, if you want to take that question, too, you know, across the scope of the pandemic, you know, what's one thing that you thought you knew but were later wrong about? Caitlin's never wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong all the time. Um, I really like your example, Dan, though, because we did think it was going to be really seasonal, and so I had totally forgot about that. For me, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say about, you know, how things have gotten so political surrounding, you know, public health response and science in general. Um, but what I will say instead, um, something that I was wrong about, I guess, when I started studying infectious disease modeling, you know, two years ago, I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined a global pandemic breaking out and being, you know, on this type of modeling team response team where we're, making, you know, daily, weekly updates, working, you know, so hard on this volunteer effort. Never, ever would have imagined something like that. You know, the models that I've worked on before, we've taken a year to come up with a model. And, you know, we come up with something we feel really good about, a really good model, and it takes that long. And so to be coming into COVID and having to do things way faster than that. I guess that's something that has definitely surprised me, um, just how my dissertation has gone and 
my time here. And I guess an excellent point, you know, kind of going back around to the, you know, how much effort, the level of effort from all of the public health community. I mean, what an excellent opportunity as a student to really put things into practice, albeit not the most optimal of circumstances necessarily. I do want to thank you guys both for coming on today. This has been a really insightful discussion and I've, I've really enjoyed getting to hear more about what an important issue we are dealing with and what the folks at our College of Public Health are dealing with. So I want to thank you for your, for your time and for your efforts for the people of Iowa. Like we said earlier, you know, these are these models are being used. You know, this is data that's that's empowering people and, and all of your efforts contribute to that. So thank you again for your time today. Yeah, thanks well, so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for those words. We appreciate it. And it's been fun. Thank you for tuning in and big thanks to Dr. Dan Sewell and Caitlin Ward for chatting with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. This episode was hosted, written, edited, and produced by Steve Linsanye. You can find our team's work on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We're on Facebook as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. If you have any ideas for our team or want to connect us with speakers, you can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. Stay safe and stay healthy out there.